Sirius may not be the best godfather, but he's a very good boy. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for doggos. I knew it! Me too, Harry! Me too! No, it's Ron, not me. It... What? Ron's prefect, not me. Ron? But... Are you sure? I mean... I... I... Well... Wow! Well done, Ron. That's really... Unexpected, said George, nodding. I'm Heather Price, right? And I'm Alex Dallenberg. And welcome to another episode of The Quibbler. This week we are reading The Woes of Mrs. Weasley and Luna Lovegood from Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. You will hear plenty of cursing, you will hear some serious spoilers, and you will hear some seriously adult themes. You might hear some serious spoilers. Ah ha ha, but really, you will. (laughs) Evergreen Harry Potter pun. This week's adult themes are profound loss of innocence, war, death, boundless love, and merit badges. Alex, what happened this week? In this week's chapters, Harry emerges from courtroom 10. Having been cleared of all charges by the Wizengamot, Arthur is shocked that the entire court tried him, as are we. Harry sees Lucius Malfoy lurking around the Ministry. He is having a chat with Fudge. It turns out that Lucius has been, like, seriously upping his donations to various philanthropic causes in the Wizarding World to curry favor with the Ministry. So there's dark magic and dark money involved in Voldemort's uh, strategy. Harry fulfills his pledge that if he was cleared of all charges, he would donate 10 galleons to St. Mungo's via the Magical Brethren Fountain. He not only throws in 10 galleons, he's so psyched that he dumps his entire money pouch out. So since one galleon is like 63 bucks, Harry gives well over $600 to charity. It's a generous kid. Harry has money to literally throw around, but uh, that's great for St. Mungo's. Maybe he should be making those donations in a more ostentatious fashion, like Lucius Malfoy. If Harry really wanted to influence the ministry, he would just set up a nonprofit, right? Everybody is really psyched that Harry got off and will be returning to Hogwarts, except Sirius, who was kind of secretly hoping that Harry would be expelled and they could just be cool outcasts together with a hippogriff. Everybody's Hogwarts letters come with their book lists, and surprise, Ron is a but but buh motherfucking prefect this year to the shock of everyone who are like, uh, what the fuck? Ron's a prefect? Literally everyone has this reaction, including Ron himself. Hermione, obviously, is also named Prefect. Ron is shocked, but secretly happy. Also, because everybody else in the family has gotten a present when they become Prefect, Ron gets to ask for a broom, although Mrs. Weasley first suggests a new rat. You'd think she would understand that Ron is fairly traumatized by owning that rat. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> what if it's another dude? Yeah, when she said that, I was like, I can't believe anyone in this family ever mentioned Scabbers. Yeah, like, seriously. Like, we do not talk about Scabbers, Mom. Ron asks for a clean sweep, one of the new model clean sweeps, which can go from zero to 60 kilometers per hour in like, no, 70 kilometers per hour in like 10 seconds. That's insane. Harry has some complicated feelings about the fact that Ron and Hermione are named Prefect and he wasn't. Mrs. Weasley throws a party for Ron and Hermione. Mundungus Fletcher shows up with a comically large trench coat, which is obviously full of contraband, and gives the twins some venomous tentacular seeds, which are a Class C non-tradable substance. How are they going to get away with selling products made of blatantly illegal materials be like oh yeah our skiving snack boxes need cocaine to work (laughs) (laughs) like what this is just full of crack yeah (laughs) like thanks for the methamphetamine mundungus 
Mad-Eye Moody comes to the party and has something cool to show Harry. It's a photo of the original Order of the Phoenix, and Mad-Eye proceeds to explain how everyone in the photo died in horrible ways. He does not explain what happened to Harry's parents, because that clearly goes without saying, but the Longbottoms are there, and uh, some other martyrs to the cause. Harry is obviously rather disturbed by this, and heads back upstairs to his room when he hears Mrs. Weasley weeping in the drawing room. She'd gone up there to clear a boggart out of a writing desk, and the boggart is transforming into every member of her family dead, and Harry. So, out of the frying pan and into the emotional fire for Harry, Lupin shows up and banishes the Bogart. Mrs. Weasley asks Harry and Lupin and the others not to tell Arthur what she saw and that it's rather silly. Harry heads to bed thinking, well, that's not silly at all given the photo that Moody just showed me. And everyone goes back to school the next day. <laughs> the gang heads off to platform nine and three quarters at King's Cross Station accompanied by Sirius, who insists on going along as a dog, even though the fact that he's an animagus is well known to Voldemort and the Death Eaters. But he has a good time uh, chasing squirrels and, uh, and such. Everyone boards the train, but Harry can't ride in the same car with Ron and Hermione because they are in the Prefect's car. So Harry takes a car with Ginny, Neville, and... Luna Lovegood, who we meet for the first time, she's a Ravenclaw, she's sort of alternative, she's got waist-length dirty blonde hair, and she keeps her wand behind her ear, and she has a necklace made out of butterbeer caps, and she's reading, ba-ba-ba, the motherfucking Quibbler upside down. So, this is an intriguing new character. Harry, Ginny, and Neville make small talk in the car. Neville has a plant it's like it's like a cactus, right? It's like yeah. He's got a weird plant. It's called a Mimbulus Mimbletonia. He touches it the wrong way, and it squirts them all with like stink slime. And there's a rom-com moment because at that moment, Cho Chang decides to walk into the car to say hi to Harry, who is covered in shit, basically. So <laughs> in plant shit. So they sit there smelling like. Mimbletonia goo until Ginny remembers that she can use magic and cleans them all up. Harry gets a peek at the Quibbler, which is filled with, like, wild conspiracy theories, including Fudge wanting to take over Gringotts Bank and have a bunch of goblins murdered, and a story about how Sirius is actually, like, I don't, like, a member of the Beatles or something. No, a famous singer. And is actually innocent. So... Draco Malfoy comes into their car because I guess every year Draco and Crabbe and Goyle just seem to knock on every compartment door and come in and say douchey things to everyone. Like, what is this? Well, this year it's because he's a prefect. Right, okay. Draco so he's also. He's like patrolling the halls. Draco has been named a prefect, and uh, they have words. Draco sneers. He says, I'll be dogging your footsteps, Harry. Maybe referencing the fact that Sirius Black came to the train station? Maybe not. But Harry thinks to himself, maybe Sirius should have done that. Maybe he should take things more seriously. Good God. <laughs> <laughs> the train arrives at Hogwarts. Hagrid is not there to take the first years out on the lake. It's Professor Grubbly Plank again. So Harry wonders where Hagrid is. As he's about to board the horseless carriages which take the other students to Hogwarts, he sees that they are not horseless at all. They are being pulled by these frightening, scaly, horse-like dragon creatures. So Harry is a little freaked out by that. He asks Ron, yo, what's up with those things? Ron can't see them and asks Harry if he's feeling all right. But then Luna says, oh, don't worry. You're just as sane as I am. I can see them too, and I've been able to from the first day I got here. And that's what happens in this week's chapters. Ba-ba-ba! Whoa, yeah. The motherfucking Thestrals. 
So let's talk about the biggest plot twist so far, which is that somebody actually has entrusted Ron Weasley with responsibility. (laughs) The decision to make him a prefect is an interesting one, though. And it provides us a lot of really good Harry Ron moments. I think this is a really well-wrought chapter for both Harry and Ron, because it's a really touching moment with Ron. He moves from being kind of shocked, then to a little embarrassed, because he really worries about what Fred and George will think about him. And then he's quietly pleased with himself in a really genuine way. Well, you see some really interesting Weasley family dynamics play out in this sequence, because Ron is really caught in between these two, like, factions in his family in a way that I think he really struggles to, like, form his own identity. Because he's got the twins who are, you know, troublemakers and, like, I guess what could kind of pass as the black sheep of the family, but they're also incredibly charismatic, unbelievably popular, really, really well-loved. And they really look down on the side of the Weasley family. That's sort of, like goody two-shoes and rule-oriented. That's really mainly Percy. Yeah, although, I mean, you know, Bill and Charlie were both... They're like golden boys, but they're a little... They're a little rougher around the edges, but ultimately, I mean, like, Bill was head boy, which, you know, you don't get by being the twins. Right. Like, they have, like, a sense of fun, but they're not chaotic good in the way the twins are. Bill is very work hard, play hard. Right. And so is Charlie, I think, is the impression we're meant to have. Well, Charlie's the sports hero. Yeah, but also, like, he was a prefect, too. Yeah. They were all prefects except the twins. (laughs) I love the moment when Mrs. Weasley says, that makes everyone in the family. And the twins are like, what does that make us? Next door neighbors. (laughs) But it's really telling because I think part of the twins desire to kind of like break free is feeling like misfits in their family like they don't feel totally accepted for who they are which I think is a real I think that's a flaw of Mrs. Weasley's I mean she loves them desperately as we learn later on in this horrifying chapter but she really doesn't let them be themselves which is a really big disservice in general because who the Weasley twins are is a pair of seriously successful geniuses. It's funny because they're actually a lot like Arthur because Arthur is a tinkerer. Yeah, they are. They are. They're like if Arthur was successful or a plow. Arthur's, I guess Arthur's not very successful, Arthur's is he? Arthur's not successful. That's the whole thing. You know. Because Arthur's in the, and that's the thing. You would think that Mrs. Weasley would realize like that Arthur is in a deeply wrong avocation. Right. Like Arthur has the wrong job and Arthur would be way happier if he had followed more of like the twins line of thinking and actually gotten into something where he could like use his gifts i don't know if he'd be happier per se i think he does like his job there's no indication he doesn't like his job and he does real good in his job which is the real thing that's holding him back is that he is i think just too he's basically too radical for the ministry and and he's more altruistic than you really can be in government. Yeah. I think that's true. But back to the prefect thing. Right, I right. just, I think Ron is really caught between these two family elements. And you're right, because he probably cares most about what the twins think of him. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, he deeply craves his parents' pride and recognition. And he wants to be noticed and he wants to be important. And the prefect badge is kind of like a symbol of all of that so yeah the extent to which he's torn is really fascinating and i think ron slowly allowing himself to take pleasure in this is really affecting for me well and i'm glad that he does that's a nice moment like he when when he puts the badge out to to look at it because he actually he's not being ostentatiously boastful about it. No, he's not being obnoxious at all. And you can also, like, he's really, really careful with Harry's feelings in a way that Harry is not as good at being careful with his. Although they have really sweet friendship moments here because right. both of them are having a lot of emotions and they, like, to their credit, they both manage them pretty well. Like, they don't fuck each other over 
emotionally in this scene. And I think it's an intense moment when he decides to ask for the broom. Because Ron really doesn't ask for much. No, especially when it comes to money. He has so much anxiety about money. Yeah. And he knows not to push it with his mom. But he realizes that this is a moment where he really, like, might get something he wants. It's a really good Ron moment. So... It's interesting because, like, we have this great Ron moment, but then there's this sort of, like, lingering question in the back of my mind of, like, is this actually a good decision? (laughs) Like, why did Dumbledore make Ron a prefect? Because... Why does Dumbledore do anything? Right, but I mean, the reason people are so shocked is because it is kind of an ill fit for Ron. He's not a leader. I was thinking... Who else is in Gryffindor this year? Okay, if you're not going to make Harry prefect, who are the other Gryffindor guys? Could anyone else have done this? Like, because Ron, we're meant to understand, is not an excellent student. Well, I don't know why Seamus or Dean couldn't do it. (laughs) Really? Both of them seem like pretty well-adjusted, smart dudes. I don't know. I think... It's just that it has to be the Golden Trio because they're the protagonists. Yeah. But well, in reality, and it, like... And it's like a... It's another wedge in between Ron and Harry. I, it, it's not as bad of a wedge as the Triwizard Tournament was, but, you know, it's still like an obstacle. It's a complicating factor. So, yeah, like narratively... It's a, it's it a make, good plot Yeah, move. narratively it makes a lot of sense. Um, but in terms of, like, the actual decision-making process, like, is Ron likely to be a particularly good prefect? No. Well, I so I have a theory here. Okay. Which maybe reflects well on Dumbledore. Okay. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> good. Um, we need that every so often. Well, okay, so for starters, Dumbledore knows that Harry's going to have another fucked up year, so... Just for Harry's own sake, he just doesn't need that. Oh, I don't think it should be Harry. Right. I think Harry doesn't deserve it either. I just think that these are two boys who don't have the qualities of leadership (laughs) that prefectdom requires. Harry's a leader. Harry doesn't deserve it for other reasons. But my main problem with Ron isn't, this isn't like a Ron's a dipshit rant. Ron's not being a dipshit here. But Ron doesn't actually have the ability to like overcome the pressures of his peers in order to make decisions that like might be unpopular with them. So Dumbledore knows that Harry is the key to everything. Ron is his best friend. Ron has already been with him on all these adventures and he's going to be by Harry's side through the worst that's still yet to come. And Ron needs some training up. Huh. But you prefects know? don't get any training. Well, just like... You were saying, like, Ron needs to learn those skills. Dumbledore is building his bench up a little bit here, I think. That makes sense to me. It's just, the thing that's really, I mean, you know, this goes back to, like, an, just, like, an overarching irritation with Dumbledore, which is that, like, you're also running a school, bro. <laughs> like, the whole point of your life isn't to get ready for Harry to get murdered by Voldemort. It's the greater good, man. But, like, he's also just, like, making sure that children, like, are safe and follow the rules. All right, so and who, Ron is going to be bad at that job. Who would you have made prefect then? Well, I don't know enough about Dean and Seamus or any of the other. Honestly, Neville would be. Ne- a yeah, Neville would have been a pretty good prefect, actually. Neville like has shown himself to have significantly more of the qualities of a good prefect than either Ron or Neville Harry. Neville pulled major prefect duty in book one. He That's did. why Gryffindor wins the House yeah, Cup. Neville would be a great prefect. Neville and Hermione would be a fantastic team also Hermione could like mentor Neville and Neville could grow into a real like a real you know stand-up guy yeah Neville could become a hero like he instead of what happens to him in this book oh wait yeah I mean (laughs) no but like Neville deserves it yeah I hear you all right well I think I think Dumbledore is trying to provide Ron with some training I think that's fair and I think Giving leadership positions to kids who have potential but don't necessarily have all those skills right at the moment, that's not a bad tactic. Everybody does seem to implicitly understand that Ron has been promoted above his qualifications, though. Yeah, uh, even his mom (laughs) is just like, really? Ronald? Are you sure? It's so embarrassing for Ron because everybody's like muttering at the dinner party like, you'd think he would have picked Harry. Yeah, that kind of um, sucks. So let's talk about Harry's reaction to this, because he has a really interesting 
kind of growth moment, I think. Harry screwed up his face and buried it in his hands. He could not lie to himself. If he had known the prefect badge was on its way, he would have expected it to come to him, not Ron. Did this make him as arrogant as Draco Malfoy? Did he think himself superior to everyone else? Did he really believe he was better than Ron? No, said the small voice defiantly. Was that true, Harry wondered, anxiously probing his own feelings. I'm better at Quidditch, said the voice, but I'm not better at anything else. That was definitely true, Harry thought. He was no better than Ron in lessons, but what about outside lessons? What about those adventures he, Ron, and Hermione had had together since they had started at Hogwarts, often risking much worse than expulsion? Well, Ron and Hermione were with me most of the time, said the voice in Harry's head. Not all the time, though, Harry argued with himself. They didn't fight Quirrell with me. They didn't take on Riddle and the Basilisk. They didn't get rid of all those Dementors the night Sirius escaped. They weren't in that graveyard with me the night Voldemort returned. I was sort of surprised by Harry's reaction to this, actually. Because you'd think he wouldn't want that responsibility, given everything else he's had to deal with. Harry, you know, I love him, but Harry's vain, and Harry likes to be the center of attention, and Harry likes to get the accolades, just straight up. Harry liked being the Triwizard Champion. Harry likes being famous. Wow. Like, it's complicated for yeah, him. Yeah, I know it's complicated. But, but, like, I think Harry wants Harry wants the recognition, always. He's also in a weird place with Dumbledore right now, so he's right. looking for some reassurance. Right, and he got the opposite of that. Yeah. I like this moment that Harry has. He's lying in bed, and, he, yeah, he recognizes that he's having these feelings, and he basically asks himself... Am I bad? Am I, like, not a good person right now? Yeah, it's so, like, teen sort of self-building. Because I feel like that's, like, a really important developmental step is when you kind of do have that ability to, like, move outside your biases for a second and say, like, is this me? Am I the problem here? And that's, like, a really important way of coming into yourself as a young person is having the ability to like kind of think about that a little bit objectively yeah harry shows some self-awareness here too because he does conclude that yeah he's probably better at quidditch than ron but he's not better at much else that is some introspection yeah he shows some real maturity in this moment because they get similar marks they're not he's not way better at school he is actually better at, like, magic than Ron. Yeah. He actually doesn't give himself enough credit, I don't think, which is even more endearing. Well, he, he does a little. He says to himself, I faced Tom Riddle in the Chamber of Secrets. I faced Voldemort in the graveyard. I killed Quirrell with my bare hands. Yeah, but, like, that's a lot. Like, he's inclined to give his friend a lot of credit, right. which I really, really admire. And Ron deserves a lot of credit. But ultimately, like, Harry is indisputably, like, more of a hero. Right. Well. I mean, he's the hero. Harry's like, so. <laughs> Harry's like, these books are named after me. In a, in a weird breaking of the fourth wall. <laughs> totally bizarre fourth yeah. wall break. Where he's like, it is called Harry Potter. Yeah, is that it's called not... Ron Weasley in the Order of the Phoenix? <laughs> Ron Weasley and the pet that was a man. Ron Weasley in the year that I became Keeper. <laughs> Why the fuck is Draco a prefect? Oh my god. Dumbledore's picking these, right? Yeah. Does, like, Snape get to, like, forward nominees? He must. It must be the head of houses. Or is Draco the only person who's, like, qualified? Just pick a nothing Slytherin who isn't, like, mortal enemies with Harry Potter, maybe. What are you doing, Dumbledore? Yeah. Unless Dumbledore is also thinking, you know what this troublingly sociopathic youth needs? power over other children yeah it's like not helping with draco malfoy's like nascent kind of like authoritarian drive just like what the fuck yeah it's a uniquely bad choice and anyone can see that i dumbledore man i don't know how i think he's just a chaos agent (laughs) he's like this will be maximally insane so let's do it all right well yeah. Whatever. Stupid nomination. Uh, 
Anyway, so let's get into the horrifying meat of this chapter. Ugh, this photo. Yeah. Mad-Eye, what you doing? What is Mad-Eye doing here? Harry's heart turned over. His mother and father were beaming up at him, sitting on either side of a small, watery-eyed man Harry recognized at once as Wormtail. He was the one who had betrayed their whereabouts to Voldemort, and so helped bring about their deaths. Hey, said Moody. Harry looked up into Moody's heavily scarred and pitted face. Evidently, Moody was under the impression he had just given Harry a bit of a treat. Yeah, said Harry, attempting to grin again. Uh, listen, I've just remembered that I haven't packed my... He was spared the trouble of inventing an object he had not packed. Sirius had just said, What's that you've got there, Mad-Eye? And Moody had turned toward him. Harry crossed the kitchen, slipped through the door, and up the stairs before anyone could call him back. He did not know why he had received such a shock. He had seen his parents' pictures before, after all, and he had met Wormtail, but to have them sprung on him like that when he was least expecting it, no one would like that, he thought angrily. And then, to see them surrounded by all those other happy faces, Benji Fenwick, who had been found in bits, and Gideon Pruitt, who had died like a hero, and the Longbottoms, who had been tortured into madness, all waving happily out of the photograph forevermore, not knowing that they were doomed. Well, Moody might find that interesting. He, Harry, found it disturbing. As usual, no one has a sense of the developmental appropriateness of their actions for children. Harry is not a child anymore, but he's a young teenager. And Moody is like, uh, wouldn't this be cool? Let's show him a whole bunch of dead people. <laughs> and it's just like, maybe like ease the fuck into it. And that I seems to think it's like a real treat. Like I'm showing you something that's going to really like tickle you, kid. And Harry's like, what the fuck? This is so disturbing. It's possible Mad-Eye has become so jaded by his years of service that he literally can't tell that this is fucked up. I think that's what we're meant to understand with Mad-Eye a little bit. He has yeah. no perception of what other people are feeling. Do you think that there's any way that Mad-Eye is actually trying to like prepare Harry? That occurred to me. I think Mad-Eye's nothing else if not a realist. And maybe he's like even overly pessimistic, but that's sort of why Dumbledore keeps him around, right? Right. Because he's the one who can, he, he, he's always thinking what's the worst that can happen. So it did occur to me that Mad-Eye is just trying to prepare Harry by basically saying, look, kid, I know you've been through a lot, but you have no idea just how bad this can get. And... On some level, it probably did occur to Mad-Eye that Harry would like to see a picture of his parents and that he is connected to this larger struggle that's been going on for a, a long time. So for me, this sequence is really important and is actually really a turning point in this book and in the series because for me, this is where it really turns into a war novel for real. Like, this is where you sort of, like, pull the lens back and you see this isn't a story about some shit going down at a school. This is a story about a society in the second phase of a massive, bloody civil war. And Harry is not the hero of a story about boarding school. Harry is the bearer of a great mortal conflict. Yeah, it's a nice broadening of perspective. There's all these names we've never even heard before, and it just reminds you that, like, the chaos and carnage of war goes so far beyond Harry's parents. Because for Harry, the most important thing that happened when Lord Voldemort was in power is his parents died. And that's sort of how tragedy works, is, like, your thing is the main thing. Well, okay, so, like, I just read Lincoln and the Bardo yeah. by George Saunders, which I highly recommend. It was an extraordinary novel, and everybody should go read it. And it's about the death of Abraham Lincoln's son, Willie Lincoln, who died of, like, 
fever when he was a very young boy. While they were in the White House. Right, and while the Civil War was going on. And so there's this great series of reflections that Lincoln has during the, and the whole book takes takes place over the course of a single night, which is Willie Lincoln's first night sort of after his death. And it's kind of metaphysical and it's extraordinary and you should read it. But Lincoln like has all these reflections about how he is sending all of these other families' sons to their death and how so many families across the Union are having the same night he's having because of choices he made. And it's like this really striking reflection because it's like the first time for Lincoln that it really hits home like what he's doing, like what the actual real consequences of the choice to fight this war are and it's like for Harry he hasn't been thinking in the context of a wizarding war he's been thinking in the context of a very personal like I was orphaned my parents were killed this happened to me and this is the moment where he's like this is happening to us like this is a whole movement this is a nation essentially or a community And my tragedy is part of this like larger, deeper, more important, more impactful societal tragedy. And it really is a civil war too. Yeah. When Mad-Eye is describing all the different ways that the various people in the picture were killed, I just kept thinking, wow, this was a dirty war. This was like bleeding Kansas, basically. Door to door family against family, not conventional in any way, just because, well, there's not that many wizards to begin with, but... Right, there's no, like, front. Yeah, just this, yeah, this hand-to-hand guerrilla war, basically. Or, yeah, yeah. It's just crazy. Like, when you think about what this war actually looks like, and when you think about this resistance group that got just fucking decimated by this thing, yeah, basically... Like, they sustained unbelievably heavy casualties. Yeah, there's... It's like half the photo, right? It's like half the photo. And it's just like, when you think about that sort of writ large across this culture, you realize, like, this isn't, like, one bad guy kind of, like, ha evil genius. This is a fucking war. Yeah, the Wizarding World needs, like, A Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Seriously. And that's the thing. Like, that's why Cornelius Fudge is so dangerous. Is because his strategy was to just pretend it hadn't happened. Yeah, he just wanted to paper it over. He wanted to just start from scratch and pretend that Voldemort had never come to power at all. Which is why it's so easy for him to get the wool pulled over his eyes. Because he never did the reckoning. And his their government never did any kind of a reckoning. And it never flushed out the elements that were on Voldemort's side. Like it put like a handful of people in Azkaban. But they didn't have any kind of like national level sort of like reckoning. Well, he's like the Andrew Johnson of the Wizarding World. I actually don't really get that. Andrew Johnson, after Lincoln's assassinated, after the Civil War, he basically does his level best to try to water down Reconstruction. He wanted to, like, destroy slavery because he thought it was, like, bad for white people. But he's not interested in, like, creating a new social order in the United States. He just didn't like planters. And Fudge is the same way. Fudge doesn't want to, like, radically reshape how the wizarding world exists and sees itself. He just wants to pretend it never happened, which is why, like... All of the shit with the house elves and the goblins and the giants and, you know, you name all these other subgroups. Like, he doesn't make any effort to, like, change how they're, like, integrated into wizarding society. Which I guess is, that is similar to, like, he doesn't really want Reconstruction. And that's a vast simplification of, like, the Reconstruction era. And, of course, we get, like, Grant afterward, who's a little better on those issues, and then everything gets, like, reversed. But uh, Slate has a Reconstruction podcast, which... uh, you guys might want to check out. Gimlet has a Civil War podcast, too, yeah. called Uncivil, yeah. I think. So there's a lot. Reconstruction is very big right now for obvious reasons. Well, uh, Fudge does no fucking reconstruction. No, Fudge is, Fudge, 
Fudge does not reconstruct anyone. There's a lot of unreconstructed Death Eaters out there. <laughs> I actually learned only recently that that's what that term means. Mm-hmm. I didn't know it referred actually to the the historical moment of reconstruction. I thought it was just like like unrepentant. So now you know. I didn't know that either. Man, I'm loving this podcast. It's heavy on the 1860s references today. <laughs> You know, yeah. uh, if there's one thing I love to reference more than 1980s and 1990s movies, it's the, the eight, Civil it's War. It's the 1860s. <laughs> so speaking of death, <laughs> now we've got more of it. Yeah. Oh, boy. So first of all, in this Mrs. Weasley, Bogart, the woes of Mrs. Weasley section, just like a quick kind of, not even a quibble, just like a kind of metaphysical question what does Mad-Eye Moody see when he sees the Boggart? Yo, I have no idea. Like, does he see what an actual Boggart pre-transformation into fear looks like? Or does he see his own greatest fear? Ah, uh, you got me. Uh, I'm assuming nobody knows what a Boggart looks like, Except right? Except Mad-Eye, maybe. I think, I think he probably sees his fear. What do you think his greatest fear is? Um... A lack of chaos and things being fucked up. You peace. think his greatest Total fear is like peace. sitting in yeah. his living room, <laughs> like reading a novel with like tea and like nobody's there to get him and his nose is whole? Yeah, Mad Eye now depends on Carnage yeah, to survive, basically, I think. <laughs> Just a calm summer evening is yeah. his greatest fear. Yeah, the, the secret with Mad Eye is he actually can't get enough of this shit. <laughs> so. Mrs. Weasley sees her whole family dead when the Boggart appears, which I gotta say, maybe this is just coming from someone with extremely high-pitched, almost debilitating anxiety, but this seems like the only fucking logical Boggart. Whose greatest fear isn't everyone they love dying? Why would it be a banshee when, like, you have, like, parents and siblings that could get murdered? Yeah, that's true. I don't understand why anybody's Boggart is anything different than this. My Boggart would absolutely be this. There is no, and it would definitely be everybody dead in car accidents. There's just like no other reasonable thing for your fear to be. But that's an insane thing to say. And I apologize for that because people have phobias and stuff. I think it's a thing that comes with age and with loving something more than yourself. Mm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a very parental fear or it's a mature fear to have you know when you're a kid you are thinking about like ooh, what could happen to me it's the difference between youth and maturity i think in a lot of ways yeah i mean and it's the difference between fearing your own death more and fearing the deaths of others more which i also think is just a personality trait yeah mrs weasley is really interesting in this scene because she sort of like embodies and in in a kind of to my mind really gendered way she is sort of made to like hold and house the fears of like the whole movement. She's sort of like the movement mother because she's the one having these obsessive thoughts sort of in lieu of anyone else really doing that emotional labor. So for me, this is a really like, it's actually like a scene that just externalizes what maternal emotional labor really looks like and like the amount that mrs weasley is being forced to kind of hold inside her as she tries to keep this family together within this movement within this conflict is just like really extraordinary and you kind of forgive her for her behavior earlier on in the book it felt like she was being overprotective it felt like she was being really thoughtless about like Harry's needs when in reality it's just that like she's being forced to like be the keeper of the fear. Don't tell Arthur. Mrs. Weasley was gulping now, mopping her eyes frantically with her cuffs. I don't want him to know. (laughs) Being silly. Lupin handed her a handkerchief and she blew her nose. Harry, I'm so sorry. What must you think of me? she said shakily. Not even able to get rid of a bogart. Don't be stupid, said Harry, trying to smile. I'm just so so worried, she said, tears spilling out of her eyes again. Half the family's in the order. It'll be a miracle if we all come through this, and Percy's not talking to us. What if something dreadful happens and we never made up? (laughs) 
And what's going to happen if Arthur and I get killed? Who's g g going to look after Ron and Ginny? So is this a strong choice by Rowling, then, are you saying? Absolutely. Right. Don't yeah, you think? I think so, too. I just wondered if you thought it was, like, cliche or No, something. I think it's really symbolic. Mm -hmm. I think it's, like, I think it says a lot about what motherhood feels like. And I think it says a lot about what women's role is in conflicts like this, which is often not to be on the front, but in a way, like, Rather than just worrying about your own, like, self, you're worrying about everyone. Everybody's fears are inhabiting her at once. Yeah, it's tough to be Mrs. Weasley. It is. It's really, really hard to be her. And, I mean, the thing is, like, this fear isn't irrational. She's right. They're not all going to make it through this. Right. And, and Harry thinks to himself that it's not irrational. She keeps saying, I'm being silly, I'm being silly, which is also just, like, again, like, women erasing their own labor. But she's not being silly. She's totally right. Yeah. They can't all survive this. There's just, he's just seen that photo. He's just like, okay, mathematically, there's a lot of fucking Weasleys. They're not all going to make it out. Whew. Uh, speaking of people who are not going to survive, that's telegraphed pretty hard with Sirius Black in these chapters. Yeah, there's really strong foreshadowing in these chapters of Sirius's demise. Like, Sirius is one of the only characters, I guess kind of besides Harry himself, who has really, like, a Greek tragedy storyline. Because yeah. he has a fatal flaw. And it's hubris in a very Greek way. His choice to, like, go to the train station as the dog is really foolish and is really short-sighted. And he sort of wants this, like, freedom and pleasure at the expense of a lot of people's safety and I just have this feeling this really sort of claustrophobic doomed feeling when I'm reading about Sirius in these chapters that's just like like he has no future yeah. it's very clear that there's no out for Sirius and I feel like rereading it there's no outcome for Sirius except the one that he gets because what else is going to happen to him? Like, how does he escape this? Yeah, he's he's got a Chekhov's gun vibe going he does. on. He really does. Like, no, he's, he's just, a, the tension is winding up, he's, and you know he's going to do something reckless. He's a dead man walking, and you can really, it's really palpable. But, and you can, yeah, you also can watch his recklessness, like, amp up and up and up and up to the point where you're like, he is going to make a fatal mistake. Right, well, one example, he kind of, he sort of wants Harry to be expelled? Right, what? which is so... I mean, he doesn't really want that, mm, but he kind of sort of does. I don't know if he doesn't really want that. I think Sirius's judgment is really clouded, and I think he's gotten really fatalistic about the future. I really respect this choice on Rowling's part, because at the end of Prisoner of Azkaban, and even in Goblet of Fire to some extent... Sirius Black is set up to be, like, really unambiguously heroic, and this complicates him in a way that I think is really believable and works really well. Sirius was locked up in a horrifying prison for most of his adult life. That would fuck you up. Yeah. You know? He's not uh, well-adjusted. <laughs> like... He's, he's having, like, terrible things have happened to Sirius, and he's having really human reactions to his situation. I, I think when I first read the books, I was sort of frustrated by that, because I wanted to see Sirius in action more and have him being more unambiguously heroic, because, you know, End of Prisoner of Azkaban is so exciting, but I, I think this is a more honest take on Sirius Black, and a more interesting take. In a way that also feels really realistic, she doesn't give him an out. He's not going to magically be... Like, just change? Well, not even that. I mean, regardless of his own sort of character flaws, even if all that were different, he's not going to be magically exonerated. He's never going to be able to live openly among his community again. And that is fucking tragic. It's horrible, but there's no way out for him. And this his his character development becomes so claustrophobic, so literally claustrophobic that you can just feel the air going out of Sirius Black, right. you know, and out of his future. There's just it's just this 
big blank. And killing him feels like the only reasonable way for his story to end. He just doesn't have a future. And putting him in Grimald Place is such a good decision because it's really evocative of how he feels. It's like kind of a manifestation of his personal situation. Yeah, and it's also a really good evocation of how his past is sort of like closing in around him and his like inability to kind of outrun like who he is. Yeah, it's uh, it's really good. Sirius is uh, one of the better characters. He's incredible, and he's so doomed, and it's so upsetting to read. But this is the first time I've ever really noticed like how carefully she like sets up the dominoes for Sirius throughout the entire book. Onto a character with a slightly happier arc, though still a pretty rough one. We meet a favorite of ours, Miss Luna Lovegood. Yeah, Luna. The girl beside the window looked up. She had straggly, waist-length, dirty blonde hair, very pale eyebrows, and protuberant eyes that gave her a permanently surprised look. Harry knew at once why Neville had chosen to pass this compartment by. The girl gave off an aura of distinct dottiness. Perhaps it was the fact that she had stuck her wand behind her left ear for safekeeping, or that she had chosen to wear a necklace of butterbeer caps, or that she was reading a magazine upside down. Her eyes ranged over Neville and came to rest on Harry. She nodded. Thanks, said Ginny, smiling at her. Harry and Neville stowed the three trunks and Hedwig's cage in the luggage rack and sat down. The girl called Luna watched them over her upside-down magazine, which was called The Quibbler. She did not seem to need to blink as much as normal humans. She stared and stared at Harry, who had taken the seat opposite her and now wished he had not. Had a good summer, Luna, Ginny asked. Yes, said Luna dreamily, without taking her eyes off Harry. Yes, it was quite enjoyable, you know. You're Harry Potter, she added. I know I am, said Harry. Neville chuckled. Luna turned her pale eyes upon him instead. And I don't know who you are. I'm nobody, said Neville hurriedly. No, you're not, said Ginny sharply. Neville Longbottom, Luna Lovegood. Luna's in my ear, but in Ravenclaw. Wit beyond measure is man's greatest treasure. First of all, it's just nice to have a Ravenclaw here in the mix. Yep. She's like the first one we know well. It's nice to have somebody not in their house, like, hanging out with them. Cedric didn't really hang with them, you know. He was just more of an acquaintance of Harry. Nice to get somebody not Gryffindor. It's great. Get some fresh blood in there. You Mm -hmm. guys have spent too much time with other hot-headed jocks and idiots. (laughs) Spend some time with someone kind of cerebral and kooky. Luna's great. Luna's a really useful outsider in these books because Luna, like, she just provides this injection of perspective into the really insular, inward-looking world of our characters. Yeah, the trio. Mm-hmm. Luna just gets to kind of be like, here's something, here's just some difference. Here's some <laughs> perspective. Here's some, here's some literally holding a magazine upside down. Yeah. Often, ah, yes, that was a thing that happened. Observations. When they're talking about all the new prefects and they mention that Pavan Patil is a Ravenclaw prefect... Luna just drops in there. She says, ah, yes, she hated going to the ball with you, Ron. Yeah, it's a useful (laughs) reminder that, like, other people notice y'all's behavior and sometimes they're not impressed. Mm -hmm. So I I like that moment from Luna. Also, she is satisfyingly weird as a wizard. The wizard kids mostly aren't that strange. A lot of the wizard adults are. But the Hogwarts students, by and large pretty generic magic is a weird thing wizarding culture is strange and luna is legitimately strange she is luna is top theater kid yeah she's got her weird like necklace made of bottle caps and her like long funny hair and her just like kind of airy fairy way of talking she's a really familiar high school kind of like archetype in a fun way though because she's She's complicated because she is all of these things, but she's also smart as a whip. And she's incredibly important to Harry's story because 
she becomes this character who believes him. Yes. And what Harry needs the most is that groundedness in somebody who thinks that he's telling the truth and believes his experiences. Luna offers that from the very word go because she believes about the Thestrals. She can see the Thestrals. Right, which is weird because Ron is like, what are you talking about, man? As if Ron has never had insane experiences with well, Harry. It's but... like we talked about in the last chapter. It's like they forget that there's fucking magic. <laughs> You're just like, guys, yeah, unexpected shit happens. You go to magic school. There, Sometimes yeah, there things was a, are invisible. <laughs> there was a giant lizard in your pipes your second year. Come on. Yeah, like, so Ron is like, I don't know, mate, is something wrong with you? It's like, no, something is wrong with this goddamn motherfucking place, Ron. <laughs> there is shit afoot. Uh, we eat breakfast with ghosts. <laughs> uh, and a great thing that Luna brings to us, speaking of weird shit going down, is the ba 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 motherfucking quibbler. I love the quibbler. We got a wizarding alt weekly, basically. Yeah. The thing I love about the quibbler is that this is like kind of what we were just talking about. And the quibbler is like a really fun example of this. It's like, so magic is crazy. (laughs) But. That's a good thesis statement. (laughs) Okay, magic is crazy. But wizarding is kind of monocultural. Yeah. In a way that's really irritating. Like they have these really rigid cultural norms and it's nice to have a wizard in counterculture yeah it because is it's like you know even and this is not something that's in the quibbler but this is kind of something i associate with alt weekly is like wizarding is very heteronormative wizarding is very white like was you know like all of the characters that we get have the same irritating like oppressive monoculture as the the muggle world and here comes the quibbler with just like another fucking take do you think it also has Savage Love? I would love to read Wizarding Savage Love. Oh my god, Wizard Sex Columns. Or it would just be the same. No, it wouldn't be the same <laughs> because they have like potions and shit to make that shit even yeah, more interesting. The Wizard the wizard Sex Column. Well, because the other thing is you can have like interspecies love in the wizarding world. <sighs> you've got like... Like you've got like giants and humans and probably like goblins and humans. Men and, and cats. Men and cats. There is so much for Dan Savage to write about. (laughs) But I mean, it's just so funny because everybody is like, ugh, the quibbler is a bunch of swill. And you're like, I don't understand what is more unlikely about turning ancient runes upside down than having ancient runes. (laughs) Or, so there's the article about Sirius where this woman says that Sirius Black is actually like Paul McCartney or whatever. Is that any crazier than the fact that Peter Pettigrew was a rat? Was a yeah, murdered, turned over Lillian James, blew apart a street, cut off his own finger, and then lived as a rat for thirteen years. Well, that's what's or twelve hel- years. That's what's hilarious about the kids' reaction to the articles in the Quibbler is they're just like, ha ha, yeah, this is ridiculous. And you're like, so many crazier things have happened to you, and you guys are only like fifteen. Voldemort lived on one of your teacher's heads for a year. Yeah, like, how is come, it any less cra- likely? Like crazy shit happens all the time. You would think wizards should be paranoid as fuck. No. Nothing is as it seems. Wizards do such an incredibly weird number on themselves where they like convince themselves that there is such thing as normal and that they all like <laughs> live within it. And it's just like, you guys are so blind to how fucking crazy everything going on around you is. That's why you need Muggleborns, right? It's like a good dose of perspective. You yeah, get but like Hermione is, this is something I really don't like about her. She is overly skeptical and she is kind of a pedant. Like Hermione is very much like, ugh, the quibbler. And it's like, girl... You were a fucking dentist's child. Yeah, you were 12 years old and Owl showed up with instructions about how to go to a magic school and you weren't like, what the fuck is this shit? She was just like, oh yeah, seems legit. Yeah, probably I am a witch. But meanwhile, <laughs> the idea that like, the cor- I don't know. The Cornelius Fudge is like having goblins assassinated so he can nationalize the Wizarding Bank. Yo, this is a conspiracy theory that I am 100% on board with. I believe the Quibbler on this one. <laughs> 
I love the quibble. It does seem to be a mix of semi-plausible stories and completely just off-the-rocker ones. Well, I'm very proud to have made it our namesake because the more I remember about the quibbler, the more I'm like, yeah, this shit is great. <laughs> very, very good. Um, who's your unsung hero? My unsung hero is Padma Patil, who becomes a Ravenclaw prefect and living well is the best revenge, right, on Ron? She's living her best life out here. Yeah. Didn't even bat an eye at that. She told Luna that Ron's a fucking trash cat, but... She's not wrong. (laughs) Luna telling Ron that he's a trash cat is one of the best scenes in this book. She did not think you treated her very well. Ron, someone needed to tell Ron that. it, It may have taken half a book, but, you know, he needed to hear it, so... Agreed. Padma fucking rocks. She's a prefect. She probably deserved it more than Ron, but Dumbledore has, like, reasons. I don't know. I guess. Hashtag reasons. My unsung hero is the Mimbulus Mimbletonia, because it just seems like the little cactus that could. It's not very attractive. It's not very valuable. But boy, if you poke it, it reacts. (laughs) And, you know, I'm proud of it. Is this our first plant unsung hero? Did we ever do the Whomping Willow? I don't think we did. No, that would have been a good unsung hero, too. That's my retroactive unsung hero. Missed opportunity. My unsung heroes are wizard plants. Missed opportunity. The Boobotubers got their own song, though. That's true. So. Also, like, my side unsung hero is Neville for bringing this thing. And if anybody deserves to be covered in stink sap, it's Harry Potter. So (laughs) just bring him down a peg. It's a good scene. Glad Cho sees that. It's great. (laughs) This week's episode is brought to you by Venomous Tentacula Pods, a Class C controlled substance. Uh, just say no to Venomous Tentacula Pods. I don't, or say yes if you're a wizarding entrepreneur. I, I don't know. I like that they're kind of like rat. Something is like inside them. Yeah, something like alive. Why are they going through Mundungus to get contraband plants and animals? Hagrid is your hookup, man. Oh, yeah, but Hagrid would tell Mrs. Weasley. Oh, I guess so. Hagrid is No, Hagrid would love... Animals, yes, not plants. Okay, not plants. Fair enough. But also, I do think Hagrid would tell Mrs. Weasley, because he's afraid of her, as we all should be. Fucking Mundungus is just, like, their guy. Yeah. (laughs) The audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They are from Jim Dale's performance of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix by J.K. Rowling. Please go and uh, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, if you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star rating and a short review if you've got the time, we would love that. You can also send us emails. You guys have been doing so lots in the last few days and we love them. Quibblerpodcast at gmail.com. Shoot us your e-owls. We will be guaranteed to read them. We always do. You can also find us on social media. We are at Quibbler Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you follow us on Twitter, you know that we live tweeted the Superb Owl with exclusively jokes about Harry Potter. So, Like half of the Superb Owl. That's true. We didn't watch like the first <laughs> couple of We were of recording this episode for the first uh, part, for, well, parts of this episode. That's true. And next week, we are finally back at Hogwarts. We are reading... How many pages? We are 200 pages in, and we just got to school. Wow. But we are only... 200 pages is only a quarter of the way through. So, good God, this one is long. Harry Um, Potter and the Death of Trees. (laughs) We are reading the chapters The Sorting Hat's New Song and Professor Umbridge. So, we'll talk to you then. Thanks. Amigos. Anything good in there? Asked Ron as Harry closed the magazine. Of course not, said Hermione scathingly, before Harry could answer. The quibbler's rubbish. Everyone knows that. Moody took a swig from his hip flask, his electric blue eyes staring sideways at Harry. Come here, I've got something that might interest you, he said. From an inner pocket of his robes, Moody pulled a very tattered old wizarding photograph. 
Original Order of the Phoenix. There's me, and there's Dumbledore beside me. That's Marlene McKinnon. She was killed two weeks after this was taken. They got her old family. That's Frank and Alice Longbottom. Poor devils. Better dead than what happened to them. Benji Fenwick, he copped it too. We only ever found bits of him. That's Edgar Bones, brother of Amelia Bones. They got him and his family too. He was a great wizard. Sturgis Podmore. Blimey, he looks young. Sirius, when he still had short hair. And there you go. Thought that would interest you. Alastair Moody was killed two years later in the Battle of the Seven Potters. 